morning. Good morning. Okay, I was under the impression that I was below the Mason-Dixon line. So, uh, you know, I, I'm expecting some Southern hospitality. Let me try that again. Good morning. Good morning. All right, I'm a South... I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm a South Carolina boy at heart, so uh, man, I'm I'm glad to be here today. I'm just gonna tell you straight up, we'll do a lot better if you'll talk back to me. Um, if I know you're with me, uh, it helps me know you're catching it. If you don't, I'm just gonna preach until you do. Okay? Don't know what kind of lunch plans you got, but uh, I promised Eric we'd be done by one. All right. Um, man, it's so good. Evan, where are you, man? Um, so good. So good. Such good worship. Uh, such good calls to us to consider the character of God. And, and as I, uh, man, just back there worshiping, listening to what we sang, felt like, again, the Lord was just confirming the word that he has for you this morning through me. So I'm really delighted to be here and I hope that you'll sense God speaking. Um, how many of you remember the story of Chicken Little? Anybody know that story? Okay. So uh, basically, it starts with this little chick named Henny Penny, who is uh, out in the barnyard pulling up a worm out of the ground. And what happens is an acorn falls from the tree above and hits Henny Penny in the head. Well, she has no idea what's just happened. I mean, she just felt this smack upside the head, and she doesn't know what's going on. So she's pretty sure that the sky is falling. So she starts screaming and shouting, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And in her sense of duty to the rest of her countrymen, she feels compelled to go tell the king that the sky is falling. So Henny Penny sets out on this journey to the king, and all along the way, she's telling everybody she meets, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Well, ultimately, she discovers that what hit her on the head was not a piece of the sky, but an acorn, and everybody lives happily ever after. Be blessed and warmed by that story. Um, I'll be honest with y'all. I feel a little bit like Kenny Penny these days. I, I feel a little bit like the sky is falling. Like, I don't know what's happening. I, I get hit, and I, I don't know what's hit me, and I'm wondering what's coming next. It feels a little bit like chaos. Y'all, if a global pandemic, with all its ensuing consequences, were not enough, there's been a steady stream of disasters, kind of one right after the other. Storms, riots, mass shootings, fires, floods. There is deep, deep political division and disturbing racial tension in our nation. And the list just goes on and on. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I can remember a time in my life that's felt quite like this feels to me. Like what is happening it seems like all the foundations are being shaken. And you know what? It's hard for me to imagine that you don't feel that unsettling sense too. All is not well in our world. At the same time, it's possible that the feeling of life in crisis is way more personal for you. Maybe your job's not secure, or maybe you recently unemployed 
your body is being ravaged by some disease and your health is deteriorating, or maybe that's happening to somebody you know and love, somebody close to you. Your family is falling apart. Maybe some of you college students are, are watching your parents divorce and separate, and what you thought was a stable family life is now being exposed as super shaky. Maybe you've been abandoned this year by some of your friends and, and betrayed. Maybe your marriage is a struggle, or your kids are rebelling, or maybe you don't have the family you thought you'd have at this point. Those dreams of being married and having kids aren't coming true. You see, crisis comes in a lot of different flavors for us. It comes in a lot of different ways and on a lot of different dimensions, and it's deep and it hurts. But the question is, as, as followers of Jesus, what should we do in a crisis? What, what should we do when we feel like everything is falling apart? How do we respond when we feel overwhelmed, Right? Anybody in the room not feel overwhelmed at some point? See, we, we've got to know. Thank you. We, we got to know what, what to do. So today, I want to show you from the life of Jesus how to respond in a crisis and how what he did should form our, uh, our response. What Jesus did in a crisis and how that should form our response. If you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, I hope you're in the habit of bringing it, maybe something to take notes uh, as Pastor Eric or uh, AJ preaches, so that you can take in the Word of God and apply it to your life. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to only look at about five verses. Mark 14, 32 to 36. Now let me set the stage for you as we come to this little snapshot in the book of Mark. Jesus is headed towards the cross. He's just left the upper room with the disciples, instituting for them the Lord's Supper, and he is headed towards Golgotha. And in between those two experiences, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at verse uh, 32, Mark chapter 14. Let's read it together. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. They went a little further, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father... He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want you to understand that the crisis for Jesus at this point is very real. It's not imagined or exaggerated. There's no ambiguity or uncertainty. Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He's conscious of what is before him. He says things like, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It says he was deeply distressed and troubled. Y'all, this is not a casual everyday disappointment. This is deep hurt. This is real pain. This is honest crisis. Listen, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows the pain he's going to endure in his body. 
He, he knows he's going to be betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He knows he's going to be separated from the Father. He knows the brokenness that he would experience in his body and the hell that he's going to endure on our behalf. Listen to me. His crisis was a, of a greater magnitude than anything you and I will ever face. Y'all, we won't ever endure what Jesus endured at this moment. We won't ever suffer the kind of betrayal and abandonment that he endured. We'll never experience the kind of physical and spiritual pain that Jesus went through. So if that's true, then what Jesus does is an appropriate example for us. We, we need to watch and learn from him so that we know how to respond when heartache and hardship or crisis come our way. What did Jesus do? He prayed. He prayed, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, in a moment of deep crisis, prayed. But it's not just that he prayed, it's how and what he prayed that offer hope and help to us. All right? So this morning, I want to show you four things from this passage that I think are beneficial to us when we face and endure hardship and trouble and trial and crisis and disappointment. All right, you ready? All right, three of you are. I'd like the rest of you to join us here. We're going to go with point number one, all right? Jesus shared the crisis with his closest companions. He shared the crisis with his closest companions. Verse 33 says this. It says, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. So I want you to get the picture here. He leaves the, he leaves the upper room with 11 of the disciples, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he stops, and he says, hey, you guys sit here while I go and pray. And then he handpicks Peter, James, and John, and they go a little bit farther. He's drawing them. Jesus is drawing them into what he's about to experience. He invited his best friends, his community to walk with him. I want you to understand here that this was Jesus' pattern. This was Jesus' pattern. He regularly drew these three guys in up close to him to share in and experience the work of God. In Mark chapter 5, when Jesus goes to heal Jairus' daughter, Guess who goes with him? Peter, James, and John. In Mark 9, these are the three that he takes up with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration so that they can see him glorified. Listen, these guys were Jesus' closest friends. They were his confidants. So in this time of difficulty, these men are his support. He humbly asked them to pray with him, to help shoulder the load with him. Y'all, you need to get this. Jesus didn't go boldly into this by himself. And if it was necessary for him to have those companions up close to you, you need to understand it's necessary for you as well. But not only, not only is Jesus asking them to shoulder the load, it's not just about him deriving comfort from their presence. Listen, this was also for their benefit. You know what happens in the story? 
you know, and Jesus knew that his crisis was going to produce a crisis in the life of the disciples. So he's not just saying to them, come and help bear my load. He's saying to them, come and see how to handle agony and pain. Listen, he's letting them into experience the faithfulness of God in the midst of difficulty. The application is, is pretty obvious. At least I think it is. You, you need to be in community. You need to cultivate godly relationships. That's, that's why this church offers you the opportunity to be a part of a city group. Is that what we call them, AJ? Right. We call them small groups at home. We're not quite as creative as y'all are. Uh, we just call them small groups. You, you need to cultivate godly friendships. I'm not talking about surface level, buddy, buddy. I'm talking about deep abiding friendships where you dig into the word together, where you confess sin, where you let other people into what you're experiencing and what you're going through so that they can walk through it with you. You need the body of Christ in your life. People who will walk with you through crisis and help you shoulder the load. Listen to me, especially you men. You don't get extra points. You don't get extra jewels in your crown or some big badge because you did it by yourself. This American notion of you just stand there and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it yourself, it's a lie from the enemy. Listen, Jesus was more man than you and I will ever be. And he had a group of men around him. You need people to walk with you through crisis. But you don't just need it for your own benefit. It's not just about serving you. You need to be in community for the sake of others. You need to let other people in to see the faithfulness and goodness of God in the midst of pain and suffering. Listen to me. When you aren't connected in the body of Christ, I'm not talking about just showing up here on Sunday morning and sitting here and singing a few songs and giving some high fives and handshakes and hugs and walking out. I'm talking about doing life with people about being real with one another, about being honest about what you're experiencing and feeling and let the people of God speak into that. Listen to me. When you don't do that, when you aren't connected, you aren't just depriving yourself, you're robbing others. I, I got to tell you this. I, I, I've been a pastor for 35 years. And I would say to you in the last few years, my wife and I have walked through some of the most difficult days of our lives. Y'all, we've lost people we love. We've lost them to sickness. We've lost them suddenly. We've been betrayed and abandoned by friends. We've been through almost unimaginable, well, I shouldn't say that because some of you probably have had worse, but we've had been through real financial crisis We've had all kinds of difficulty and hardship come into our life. But can I tell you something? For the last eight years, my wife and I have been in a small group. We hosted our house on Sunday night. And I can tell you honestly, I don't think we would have made it through some of those days had we not had the people of God around us. But you know what else? Those people have watched God be faithful to us. 
They've watched God support us and provide for us and bless us. And equal to our pain and our disappointment and hurt has been the blessing and goodness of faithfulness of God. Listen to me. When you withdraw from people and you don't let them see your pain and suffering, you also exclude them from seeing the faithfulness and goodness of God. When you get disappointed, you need to share that. When you have a miscarriage, people around you need to know. When you get a diagnosis from the doctor you weren't expecting, when you get a layoff or you get passed over from a promotion or you don't get the grade you thought you were going to get in school, listen, you need to share that because those people need to come around you and remind you of the truth of who God is. But at the same time, you are positioning them to see the faithfulness and goodness of God when he comes through. That's good, y'all. All All right? Maybe I'm the only one that needs that in the room today. Listen, for your sake and the sake of others, you need to invest in cultivating godly relationships in the body of Christ. And let me just say one more thing. I'm going to say this to those of you who are younger, especially in this microwave generation, instant, everything's quick, Instagram, Instapost, Insta-whatever. Deep, abiding friendships are not instant. They take time. They take intentionality. They take vulnerability. They take honesty. They take work. Men, same thing. You are not going to cultivate a godly relationship on the golf course. Get into a room with the Word of God in the presence of God. Read it and pray together and let the Holy Spirit do the work of connecting you to the brothers in the body of Christ. All right, see, I'm going to get on a plane and go back. I can just say all this stuff, all right? Number two, Jesus focused on the character of God, all right? So Jesus took his closest friends in. The second point is this. He focused on the character of God. Look at his prayer. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you see how he begins? Do you see how he starts his prayer? Abba, Father, he said, everything, everything's possible for you. Much like his instruction to his disciples to begin their prayers with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus starts by focusing on God's fatherly compassion and his sovereign power. Abba, Father. Listen, it's really easy for us to read those words and not give it the weight it deserves. This is not a casual greeting. This is not some formal way to start our prayer. It's not stiff. It's not polite. It's an expression of tenderness and intimacy and delight. Literally translated is Papa. Papa. That's what I call my dad. Papa. Papa. Daddy. Jesus finds comfort in this moment in remembering the heart and character of God. Listen, Jesus knew what the scriptures call us to over and over again to see and believe. God is gracious and compassionate as a father. You know this verse, Psalm 103, 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Listen, when we pray, When we come, in in good days or in bad days, in abundance and pleasure or in crisis and pain, we've got to learn to look full into the face of our Father and adore our loving, merciful, gracious, and compassionate 
bad. Listen, we're not calling to a distant and hard-hearted God. Because when difficulty comes, can I tell you this? You may already know it. When difficulty comes, you know what? The, one of the first things we're tempted to do is to question the character of God. Well, if God really loved me, if God really cared about me, and you see, we make our circumstance the measure of the goodness and grace and love of God. And I need to tell you that the scripture says God demonstrates his love for you in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Your joblessness, your homelessness, your grades, your family, your children, your hopes and dreams, they are not the measure of God's love for you. And y'all, we got to back up and look full into the face of God our Father who did not spare his only son but freely gave him up for us all. And remember, we are loved. We are loved. When we pray, we got to start with this full-on gaze into the face of God. And remember that we are where we are. We are still standing. We are not destroyed. We are not overcome because of his great love for us. I love these verses. Romans, I mean, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You're still standing because he loves you. You're not burnt up. You're not destroyed. You're not consumed because he loves you. Whether you feel like it or not, even in crisis, marvel at the great love of your father. But listen, there's another aspect of this that we cannot overlook. I cannot pass this by this morning. To call God father, listen, is to identify yourself as a son or daughter. I got two boys. They are 12 and 14. They are the only two living human beings who can legitimately call me dad. Why? Because they're my sons. When you call God father, you are identifying yourself as a son or daughter. And a son or daughter, a child that has every right and every expectation of being heard and of being welcomed into open arms. Do you know how Ephesians 2 describes us? Ephesians 2 says this. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says we were sons of disobedience who followed the passions and desires of our flesh. In fact, it calls us children, but not children of God, children of wrath. Because of the way we rebelled against God. But then it says this, verse 4, I love this, but God, but God, not but you, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and made to be a daughter, a son of God. Can I ask you this morning? Straight up, straight up, no pretense, no acting, no front, no mask. Do you know that you are a son or, da or daughter of God today? Can you say that by, with confidence you have placed your faith in Jesus 
and been adopted into the family of God. You see, that may be for some of you the most important thing to hear me say today. This is the place of safety and security and hope as a son or daughter of God. Listen to me. You don't become a son on the basis of what you do or where you were born, or who your parents were, or if you went to church. You become a son by trusting in what Jesus has done. Some of you today need to embrace the rich mercy and grace of God that can make you alive and adopt you into his family. You know what? Right now, right now, in this moment, mid-sermon, you can, in your heart of hearts, look toward heaven and say to God, you know what, I, I know I'm a child of wrath. I, I know it. I know I deserve your anger because I've rebelled. I've gone my own way. I've wanted to live according to my own desires. But I believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. And, and I want to turn from my sin. I'm asking you, God, save me. Father, save me and make me one of your own. Make me alive. I trust you. I surrender my life to you. Nothing magic in those words. It's an honest cry of a heart that says, I know I'm separated from God and I don't want to be. I don't want to be a child of wrath. I want to be adopted as a beloved son or daughter. So I'm going to turn from sin and turn to Jesus and embrace his love and ask him to embrace me. I just want to say it again and be really clear. You're either a son or daughter or you're not. And if you are, then adore and worship your loving God. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that our bank accounts are full and our houses are secure and our children behave and everything works out great. We get the woman of our dreams and the man of our dreams and everything works out. No, 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 no. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Listen to me this morning. That kind of love says more about him than it does about you. So bask in it, revel in it, glory in it, delight in it. The Father loves you. Worship him. All right, number three. Jesus recalled the power of God. He, so he takes his closest friends in with him. He focuses, Jesus focuses on the character of God, and then he recalls the power of God. Look at verse 36 again. Abba, Father, he said. Papa, Daddy, Everything is possible for you. Eric, you know this, like your kids think you can do anything, right? No. There, there's a season. It's pretty quick. My, mine no longer think I'm capable of anything. At four, my, my oldest at 14 thinks I don't know a thing. I'm an utter and complete idiot. Um, but there is a season where kids think, you know, they think their dad's the greatest. They think he can do anything. He can fix anything. You know, it's a glorious season. But Jesus said to God the Father, everything is possible for you. Listen to me. This is a resounding declaration of faith in the middle of unbelievable turmoil. 
Jesus is not saying this on the mountaintop. Jesus is not saying this in the middle of prosperity and blessing and ease. Jesus is saying this in the moment of crisis. Everything is possible for you. It's a resounding declaration of faith. This isn't an empty platitude, and it's anchored in everything that Jesus has seen God do. Listen to me. Jesus was there in the beginning when the world was created. He watched God take, the, take everything that was formless and void and by the words of his mouth create everything we see. He knows God can do anything. Jesus was there when God began to fulfill his promise to make a great nation out of impotent Abraham. He saw the father rescue the children from the bondage in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Jesus was there when God caused the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the dead to come out of the tomb. Listen to me. He knows nothing is impossible for God because he's seen God do the impossible. So in his impossible moment, Jesus turns to his father, remembering his deeds, recalling his power, and says, everything is possible for you. At this moment, Jesus is appealing both to God's compassion as father and his power as creator. We have two boys. They're 12 and 14. Um, they're my children, not my grandchildren. Um, we were at the beach a few years ago, and I, I'll be straight with you, I was really struggling. Um, there had been some significant disappointment in my life. Um, I was wrestling with the fact that we had done what we thought God was asking us to do, and it had turned out badly. We hadn't reaped the consequences we thought we would reap from obedience. And I, I, was, I was having a rough time. I felt like God was completely inactive and uh, not engaged at all. And I'm sitting on the beach. I'm watching my boys play in the waves. And I heard this question rise up in me. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what was best for your boys. And you had the power to do it. Would you? If you knew, Chris, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what was best for Hudson and Haddon, and you had the power, would you do it? And every dad in the room knows that the reflex response is absolutely, without any hesitation, if I knew what was best and I had the power of do it, do it, you better believe I would do it. I wouldn't hold back. I wouldn't hesitate. And as sure as I answered that in my head, I heard the Spirit of God say to me, I'm that kind of dad. I'm that kind of dad. I'm that kind of dad. I know what's best and I have the power to do it. And these verses rushed into my mind from Matthew chapter 7 verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Y'all, when we don't trust and believe in the compassion 
compassion and goodness and power of God, we malign his character and his word. Your best praying in any situation will not come from a thorough examination of your circumstances, but from a thorough exaltation of the character and power of God. Some of y'all need to write that down. Because you're still measuring God by your circumstance. And it's an unfair and unrealistic and inappropriate measure. Your best praying will not come from describing your circumstance to God. I'm always astounded by this when I hear people pray. Man, they, they talk about their situation like God has no idea what's going on. Like, oh gosh, I'm really glad you told me that because I had no idea. Like, I didn't know it was that bad. Listen, God is deeply and intimately familiar with all your ways. You don't need to describe the problem. You need to quit looking at the problem and look at the character of God. The issue is not the depth of your need. The issue is the abundance of the goodness and power of God. And y'all, we're looking at the wrong thing. You see, here's what we do. We gaze at our trouble. And we glance at God. We stare deeply into our difficulty. But we pass by the character and work and promises of God. Listen, more than you and I need to know the details of our situation and describe it to God. And more than we need to formulate a plan for action and tell God how to fix it. We need, we need to know who God is and what he can do. We need to be familiar with him and his ways and his deeds. And we need to recount his promises. Because listen, more than praying is about getting something from God, it's getting to God. You don't just need what God can do. You need who he is. You need him. The fourth thing I want you to see out of this passage is this. Jesus surrendered to the purposes of God. Jesus surrendered to the purposes of God. He took his friends with him his companions, he was in community, he focused on the character of God, he recalled the deeds of God, but then he surrendered to the purposes of God. Look at the back half of verse 36. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I want you to see this. Again, we see Jesus following following the pattern for prayer that he gave us in the model prayer. You remember that? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he taught us to pray, to surrender, to prioritize the purposes and work of God. Y'all, I find this super intriguing to me. Why would Jesus say, take this cup from me? Think about it. Why would Jesus say to God the Father, take this cup from me? He knew there was no plan B. Jesus knew there wasn't an alternate route to salvation. Jesus knew that this was the plan for redemption. In eternity past, he and the Father had conceived this plan and agreed upon it. This was made before, the Revelation says, Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Listen, before anything was created, Jesus the Son and God the Father and the Holy Spirit decided this is the path of redemption. Jesus knows there's not another way. So why would he ask God, take this cup from me? 
But I'll tell you what I think. I think this is where you see the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus collide. Jesus fully human. Listen to me. The scripture says he was tempted in all ways like as we are. He's tempted. He wants to escape pain. He, he wants things to go well. He doesn't want to endure this. The scripture says he despised the shame of the cross. He didn't want to do it. That's Jesus fully human. But Jesus fully divine surrenders to the purposes and promises and plans of God. Listen, this verse, hang on just a second, Evan, okay? I'm going to preach a little bit more and then you, can, then you can jump in on me. I got a whole nother section, all right? All right. I don't want him to be distracted by you. I want him to listen to me, all right? This verse gives us both permission and direction, okay? It's okay. Don't get messed up. He's fine. You cool with me? All right. You good? All right. Yeah, we're good. All right, here we go. This verse gives you permission and direction, all right? Permission. Permission. You can honestly cry out to God, is there another way? Jesus said, take this cup. I don't want to do this. Y'all, we can say to God, I don't want to walk this path. I don't want to endure this pain. I don't want this heartache. Can we please do it another way? God, can you change this? Can you work this out? Can you make this different? Can you heal? Can you deliver? God, can you, can you do something else here? It's okay to say that. God can handle your complaint. He can deal with your objection. According to this prayer, it is perfectly acceptable to ask God to change your circumstance. It's okay. Ask. And there are scriptures that are full of incidences where God just does just that. His kids ask and they change. He changes things. He responds. So ask. Listen, you've not just been given permission to ask. You've been instructed to ask. Matthew 7, 7 is a command. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Or how about this one, James 4, 2? You don't have, because you don't ask. Listen, God expects us to ask. But not only does this give us permission, this prayer gives us direction. He didn't just say, he didn't just say, take this cup. He said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Listen, this is not resignation. This is not some polite way to give God an out just in case he doesn't want to do what you want to do. This is not you saving face with God. This is an honest response from Jesus. It is an expectant embrace of the plans and purposes of God. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Listen to me, more than Jesus wants to escape pain and suffering, he wants to see salvation purchased for mankind. Aren't you glad? More than Jesus wanted to escape pain and suffering, he wanted to see salvation purchased for my, mankind. Listen to me this morning. The heart, my heart, that longs for a change of circumstance must also have a greater longing. 
All my longings can't be wrapped up in my comfort and my pleasure and my abundance and my prosperity and my blessing. Y'all, my, the heart that longs for that has got to long for something greater. And that's a longing to see God accomplish his purposes in the way he deems best. And y'all, that's a good thing. Listen, our hearts have got to believe Psalm 1830. As for God, his way is perfect. And we need to learn to love God's dreams for us more than we love our dreams for ourselves. Y'all, I know what it is to love your dreams for yourself. To those of you college students, young adults who are single, I'm going to tell you, I didn't get married until I was 47. I know what it is to long for the blessing of God. I know what it is to cling to a dream and then to despair when it doesn't look like it's coming true. But i got to tell you something. We've got to learn to long for something that's greater than our little dreams for ourselves. My home church... We love this verse, Ephesians 3.21. Y'all do this here. This is this, all of us. We love this verse. Now to him. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we, are ask, we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly more. We love that more. I like more. Y'all like more? Yeah. More food, more steak, more money, more cars, more, 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 more. We like more. Here's what I think we missed. The implication of this verse is not just that he can do more than we can imagine. It's that he can do better. He can't just do more. He's not just able to do more. He's able to do better. And he can do better than your imaginations because his imaginations are better than yours. His thinking, his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding are so much greater than ours. Listen to me this morning. I'm going to say it again. His dreams for you are better than your dreams for you. So let go. Surrender. Embrace his dreams and his desires for you. Jesus said, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Papa. Daddy. Everything's possible for you. You, you can do anything. <laughs> Take this cup from me. Yet, not, not what, I, what I will. Not what I want. But what you want. You know what I love about this? It's not complicated. There's not a soul seated in this room that can't pray that way. There's no big words. There's no big words. There's no word in there you got to look up in the dictionary to figure out what it means. It's not overly equal, equal, eloquent or impressive. Nobody listens to that prayer and goes, Whoa, did you hear how he prayed? It's simple. It's honest. It's from the heart. And y'all, we can pray this way. But it requires that we focus on the character of God and the promises of God before we lay out our requests and desires. And then once we've cast our anxiety on him, knowing that he cares for us, then we release it and we say, you know what, God, you do what you want to do. 
You do what's best. I trust you. You can pray this way. I want to challenge you this week to start praying this way. It's going to take some work because I'm going to tell you, our reflex is to run right to the problem and start spouting it off to God, telling him what we need. We're like efficient. Let's just cut to the chase, God. Here's what I need you to do. But I need to tell you, you need to spend some time gazing on the beauty of God and calling out his character. You need to revel in the love and kindness and goodness of God and remember his faithfulness and his great power in your life and beyond your life and in history. And once you've spent time focusing on who he is and what he can do, then it's an appropriate way to lay out your request and your response and say, God, I'd like to ask you to change this. I, I don't want this, but... But even in that, God, I'm going to go with what you want. I want to challenge you. Pray that way this week. Let's begin to put this into practice and and watch God. Watch God work in our hearts and in our lives. In this community, on your campus, all around Tampa. And bring glory to himself. Can we pray? God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you are a God of love and compassion that never fails and never runs out. God, thank you that your mercies don't ever end. They're new every morning. You are a God of love and mercy. And God, I'm so thankful for that today. And I'm thankful, God, that behind us is is a history, a record of your faithfulness and goodness and power. God, we know that you are able to do anything Nothing is too difficult for you. Your ear is not too dull that it cannot hear and your arm is not too short that it cannot save. God, we know that to be true about you. And so God, we freely cast our anxiety on you, our care on you. We cry out to you, God, would you help us? Help us in our time of need. But then like Jesus, we want to say, God, what's most important is what you want to do. So we surrender ourselves, our desires and our longings, to your dreams and your purposes and your plans. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.